Thank you very much, everyone, for coming to this year's Brian Berry Memorial Lecture. My name is Lea Uppi. I'm a professor of political theory in the government department here at the LSE. It's my pleasure to welcome Jenny Mansbridge, who will be this year's speaker for the Brian Berry's Memorial Lecture. Brian Berry was a professor of political science at the London School of Economics for many years, where he held the Graham Wallace Chair in Political Science. And he had a wide range of research interests, which I'm not going to try and summarize here. His, what is distinctive, perhaps, on his work was that it spanned political theory at the intersection of democratic theory, public choice theory, and perhaps the areas in which he most advanced political theory was in terms of overlap with political science and economics. And uh, it's very good to have Jenny here because her work in some ways speaks to this tradition of political theory that Brian Berry also contributed to. Jenny is a Charles Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values at the Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University. She earned her PhD from Harvard University and has previously taught at the universities of Chicago and Northwestern. She has made many groundbreaking contributions to democratic theory, feminist scholarship, and the empirical study of social movements and direct democracy. I will mention here for her first book, Beyond Adversary Democracy, published by the University of Chicago Press, which has influenced generations of political theorists working on democracy and its relation to political activism and political institutions, as has her other award-winning book, Why We Lost the Era, which is a study of anti-deliberative dynamics in social movements based in organizing for an equal rights amendment to the U.S. Constitution. She has been an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences since 1994, corresponding fellow of the British Academy since 2014, and president of the American Political Science Association between 2012 and 2013, and her most recent edited books are on the topics of deliberative systems and on negotiating agreement in politics, both of which are themes in which she continues to her groundbreaking work. And tonight, Jenny is going to speak about listening to one's constituents. And now there's an idea. A topic that begins with a divorce between political elites and citizens disadvantaged by globalization and reflects on what kind of contact representatives and their constituents ought to have had with each other to obtain a better representation of their interests in politics. She's suggesting this in the aftermath of Trump and Brexit, and we're here just before the British election, so maybe we're still in time to absorb the idea. Um, the Twitter, there's a Twitter hashtag for the event, which is LSE Berry. And there is also a podcast recording the event, which will be made available afterwards, hoping that there will be no technical difficulties. I would ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent, not to switch them off, because if you'd like to tweet about the event, you're very welcome to. And I would invite you to join me in welcoming Jenny in delivering her talk. Thank you. Thank you. Um I'm delighted and honored to be here. I knew Brian very relatively well. We were colleagues together at the University of Chicago, and so it's an honor to be asked to give a lecture in his name. Um, Leah referred to me as Jenny, and you'll see that my name is Jane, but my nickname is Jenny, and I am Jenny to you. So, that, so. Um, so 
I'll, I'm going to give sort of two parts here. The first is uh, describes a crisis in legitimacy, and the second gives a new, some new thoughts on representation. I don't in any way in any way suggest that my thoughts on representation are the solution to the crisis in legitimacy, just some ideas. Um, and I'll be talking about recursive communication, and I'll explain what I mean by that later. Um, so first, the crisis of legitimacy and where it came from. I'm just going to touch on a couple of proximate causes. Um, you can see that Great Britain um, has had a massive increase in inequality. Uh, top, this is the top well, 1%. Um, Great Britain is not the most unequal of countries, um, but it's up there with others, and it's had the second biggest increase since 1980. So that's a problem. Um, and then we wonder where the gains went uh, to um, when we have had economic expansion. I don't know what's the case in Great Britain, but Joe Stieglitz, the economist, suggests that at least in the recovery from the Great a recession that 91% uh, of the gains went to the top 1%. That's also a problem for legitimacy as we go along. Now, I don't have a comparable um, map for Great Britain, um, but in the United States, the, the economic inequality is quite geographic. And I know it is as well in Great Britain. I just wish I had the map. And it's not just economic economics, it's that those same places that have had economic success have developed some values that are somewhat different from the values in the rest of the country. And that's the case here in Britain as well. So some of those values sometimes express themselves in populism. And I think I'm not going, going to go into this, but I think it might be useful to borrow from Charles Taylor and some of the other people who speak about uh, recognition, borrow some of that language and thinking and apply it sort of perhaps unusually, to the left behind people in the different countries. Um, there's, they experience not only economic decline, but also because of this change in values, a feeling to some degree of social contempt. I take that word from Axel Honneth. Um, so there's a perception of the elites as corrupt and uncaring, and that too undermines legitimacy. Those are some proximate causes. I want to spend most of my time at this first part of the talk on the macro causes. This is where we're going to need some pieces of paper torn into, uh, into, into smaller pieces. I'm going to argue why do we need state coercion, why we're going to need in the future, as we go forward in the world, we're going to need increasingly more state coercion. And our capacity to legitim legitimate that coercion is decreasing. So here's uh, why we need uh, um, coer state coercion at all is I'm sure most of you are familiar with the collective, or many of you are familiar with the collective action problem. Um, I'm using slightly different language. I'm, instead of collective action problem, I'm talking about a free rider problem. Instead of the word public goods, which has technical difficulties, I'm using the phrase free use good, goods, and I'm going to explain what I mean here. Um, by free use goods, I mean simply any good that once you bring it into being can be used by anyone freely without paying. And we need more and more of these kinds of goods that are most efficient if you bring them into the world and then anyone can use them without paying. Toll roads are an extremely inefficient way of doing roads. And that's not just not true of roads, it's true of many, many, many other things. 
it's much more efficient to produce clean air than it is to give everybody a personally viable gas mask. That would be clean air is a free use good. You could change it into private property by having people all buy gas masks, but that's not a very efficient way of going about it. It's also somewhat unpleasant. Um, so now I'm going to do this little exercise. And um, where is that? Someone offered to, to. So if you'll all take some a piece of paper, um, and tear it into pieces, if you will. Maybe you can. I sort of planning to do this before we started, but somehow or other, it didn't happen. There you go. Um, maybe you could tear some more in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to endow all of you with an imaginary hundred pounds. Okay? You've all got a hundred pounds richer than when you came into this room. And I'm going to ask you to give me either zero or 100 on this little piece of paper, folded up so no one can see you, not in between, just for ease of calculation. Um, and then I'll be a doubling machine, and I'll double everything I get and give it back to everybody equally. So that's pretty understandable, right? And that means that if you give me 100 pounds, I will double it, and you'll get back. what you'll get back is the equal share of what everybody else, everybody gave me, doubled. But if you give me zero pounds, this is running off the machine, if you give me zero pounds, then you will leave this room with 100 more, plus the extra that um, is what everybody gave and got doubled and given back to everybody equally. So the, the equal amount being given back is a free use good. You get it even if you didn't contribute to paying for it. Okay, so that's a free use good. And now I'm going to ask everybody to write. Um, oh, so of course, if everyone gives zero, of course it pays you to give zero, right? Because then you'll leave with $100, 100 pounds more. But if everyone gives zero, then you'll completely waste this resource, which is a pretty terrific resource. You don't put in any effort at all, and you get double your money back. So um, there's no trick to it, by the way. So please write that. Pass it up to the gentleman over here. Whoop. Write, write zero or 100 pounds on your piece of paper. Fold it up and pass it in that direction. You pass it to the end of the aisle and then you can pass them all back. So that's, that's the common pool. That's what's called the common pool. That's what's called the common pool version. I'm going to go on with a lecture while you do that. So this is, of course, the free rider problem. The question is, all right, I'm going to continue with the lecture. So stop talking. Um, that contributes to the free rider problem. Each of you is tempted to free ride on the others. It's quite clear. Okay. So now I'm going to assume that about 70% of you wrote 100 pounds and contributed up there. That may be high or not low. Now I want to ask those of you, the percentage that did this, why? Why did you do it? Just think for a second. Why did you do it? Well, it could have been a kind of duty, a sort of Kantianism. Well, what if everybody did it? Well, and if, I, if I'm going to sort of ask myself, well, what if everybody did it? I should, I should do what I wish everybody would do, a kind of maxim. Um, or you might just have thought, without going through any of that logic, you might just have thought, I should. Some, something in you must, might just have said, I should. That's kind of somewhat cognitive. Or you might have thought, these are my, this is, this is us. This, these are my classmates at LSE. 
I don't, I don't want to let them down. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to do my part for us, for the collective. That would be a little bit more of an emotional uh, uh, motivation. But as we know in human life from psychologists and from philosophers, emotion and reason complement one another and intertwine. So I'm not making a big fuss about where it comes from. But let's say, let's call this the core, and let's say 70% of you contributed. Now, what do you think will happen if we ran the exercise again? Do you think that that number would go down, or do you think it would go up? What? Anyone th- how many people think it would go up? So and up how many people think it would go down? The the, the, if I did it again, how, what, what would the percentage giving increase, or would it decrease? Is, is Quite a few people. After we know the result of the first round. After you know the results of the first round. <laughs> Actually, the studies in the, psycho- in the psychology lab show that they go down because the, 30%, the, the 70% who gave look around at the 30% who didn't give and think, wait a minute, <laughs> they're walking out of here with 100 pounds more than I am. And so just a few people the next time will give a little bit less and then a little bit less and a little bit less and it'll, be, it'll unravel, as the, as the game theorists call it. So what do we do? We put a little bit of coercion around the edge. Um, So for example, supposing I asked you to pass that piece of paper up to me, open. Or even more so, pass it along the row so that everybody could see it. Or I went up and I said, Jonathan, zero. You know, (laughs) Jenny, a hundred. That would allow um, a certain amount of coercion into the game because you would, you would be worrying about the threat of sanction, the, the, the fact that people might not be as, uh, think as well of you the next time around. So that's a little bit of coercion. And that would tend to keep it from unraveling. So this coercion can be thought of. It depends on how it's designed, but it can, be, it can either drive out the solidarity and duty or it can provide an ecological niche for the solidarity and duty to stay. Because if there's a, just that little bit of social coercion, then, um, then the people who are giving for the genuine reasons of so, duty and solidarity can keep doing so without feeling that they are very much, that they're being taken, being made a fool of, being um, turned into suckers. So the goal is to make that coercion, which we need to keep this from unraveling. We must have it. Well, not must, but it's very useful to have it to keep this from unraveling. The goal is to make that as legitimate as possible. Now, I'm not saying that duty and solidarity and coercion are the only. Uh, there are other intrinsic motivations. I give, uh, you know, I, I edit the Wikipedia every so often when I see a mistake. I, I just bop in and edit it, and that's fun. It's agency, and um, you can work it out so that the so that the punishment is. Is in, you don't have to have external punishment. When Sweden moved over from uh, driving on the uh, left to the right, um, they did so at midnight one day, and they didn't have to have many cops out the next day. They had to have ambulances, but they didn't have to have many police out the next day because the, the punishment was built into the fact that, of the coordination. And you can also have nudges. Um, Cass Sunstein and, and Richard Thaler have written about that. So I'm not going to go into that. But basically... Not all of those things will do the job. You do need a little bit of coercion. So why do we need more and more coercion? We need more and more coercion because we're becoming increasingly interdependent. Um, Our lives, the things we want make us 
increasingly interdependent. For example, in the United States these days, in the middle of the winter, I can go out to the store and get blueberries. When I was a kid, you got blueberries one time a year, blueberry season. Well, now it's a trivial um, trivial increment of pleasure in my life. I can get it in the, um, in the middle of the winter. How do I get those blueberries? That Chile, which provides 90% of the blueberries to the U.S. in uh, the middle of the winter, has some of the strongest food safety standards in the world. Though that's a free-use good. I get to benefit from the uh, safe blueberries, and it's created by state coercion. The roads that bring the blueberries, the harbors, the emission standards, all of those things are free-use goods. The more people like me want blueberries on their table in the winter, the more we're going to have intricate webs of state coercion supporting the free-use goods that make those things that we want um, available. Now, of course, I'm not even talking about climate stability. All of you know that climate stability is the big daddy of free-use goods. Um, if we can achieve it, everybody will benefit whether or not they contributed to bringing it about. But um, the chances are we, it's very hard to produce enough coercion in the uh, international realm to make that free-use good come about. So all these things are free-use goods. Now, we're, we not only have more of these, we not only need more of these free-use goods because we're more interdependent, we also need them because a number of free-use goods were just sort of provided by, so to speak, nature in the past. Human beings didn't have to provide clean air. It was just there. Human beings did not have to provide clean water, et cetera, et cetera, fish in the sea, all these things. Those things were just there. We didn't have to organize ourselves to produce them. Once we organize human activity, organizing to produce it, these things are all free-use goods. So we're in a pickle because it's very hard to produce free-use goods for the reasons that you just experienced. Has any, have you, no, not yet, okay. All right, so that's the summary. We, free-use goods cause free-rider problems. To solve free-rider problems, you need coercion. The trouble is, uh, and, and so the amount of free uh, state coercion that we need is gonna go up and up and up and up. In all of your lifetimes, you will see nothing but increasing state coercion because we need it. However, our capacity to legitimate that coercion is decreasing. And it's decreased, oh, and by legitimacy, I mean the right to rule, the right to use state, um, and there's normative legitimacy and perceived legitimacy. Perceived legitimacy is do what's doing the work in the world, but there's no, um, it's not great to be living in a polity in which perceived legitimacy isn't being backed by real explainable normative legitimacy that stands on good grounds. Um, so it's both normative and perceived legitimacy that are decreasing. And why? Why? Well, one of the reasons is that all, you know, let's see. Okay, yes, everybody in this room has grown up in a situation in which they questioning authority is a real good. Um, you pride yourself on questioning authority. That's, and you're, not your parents probably, but your parents' parents didn't live in that world. They were more likely to say, well, it's an authority. Well, you know, well, Jenny, because your father says so. Um, that, that no longer is the life we live in. Recent history, we've seen Hitler, we've seen Stalin, we've seen Pol Pot. We know 
the evils that the state can do, the deep, deep evils. So we are rightly frightened of the state. And then ironically, just because we need more and more and more state coercion, we've got more and more and more state coercion, and that naturally makes us more and more and more worried about state coercion. So it's harder to legitimate it simply because there's more of it, and that allows us, that makes us rightly worried about it. So what happens when the demand goes up and the supply goes down? I think those of you who've taken introductory microeconomics or not even have had to do that. The price goes up. It becomes more precious. So this is, that's the first lesson of this lecture, is that legitimacy is becoming more and more precious. And that means I hope that many of you in this room, since you're at LSE, will pay attention to that and understand that, and maybe some of you, one or two of you may dedicate your lives to helping sustain this very, very precious thing that we need. So um, that's the end of the first part of that. So I'm setting the stage. We need this legitimacy. So enter representation. I'm going to walk through some. The, first, the disclaimer. You know, this is a, such a, in a way, this is a kind of minor thing I'm talking about because we need to do a lot of thought making uh, coercion minimal. Because it's so precious, you don't want to waste it. And today, in the way states are organized, it's tremendously wasted. There's much more state coercion than we need in some cases. Uh, then we also need to design it so that it keeps duty and solidarity going. It doesn't undermine it. It's a wonderful experiment by some um, economists in Israel. They studied a daycare center that uh, put fines in for picking up your kids late. And those of you who don't know this experiment, do you think that it made more people pick, uh, late to pick up their kids or fewer people to late to pick up their kids? Okay, I can see some smile. You can see, would the economists be interested in it if it wasn't counterintuitive? No. So, of course, of course, it made more people late to pick up their kids because instead of doing it for reasons of duty and solidarity and thinking, oh, the poor daycare center people, I'm, uh, I don't want to make them you know, stay over time and so forth, they just considered it a payment. It moved itself into the realm of the extrinsic. So we have to design solidarity uh, to coercion not to do that. <laughs> this is a really easy one, eliminating money in politics. So it's really easy in the United States. That's why we haven't gotten around to doing it. So I'm not going to talk about any of these extremely important things, but I'm going to talk about something that has come to my attention recently and that I do want to introduce you to. I want to talk about a new role for the representative, what I'm calling the representative as interlocutor. And I'm going to introduce this concept of recursive communication. I'm going to suggest that we need that we ought to be thinking, all of us, analytically about representation in the not only in the electoral sector but in the administrative sector and in the societal sector. And um, then I'm going to urge us to think when we think deliberately, think about negotiation. Let's just ask. So, what would have happened here um, if there had been better communication? Do you think? Um, that representatives could have convinced their constituents that a Remain vote better served their interests. I will put my heart on the table. I'm a Remain person, so I would. I, I think that you know, if if you'd really been able to deliberate, you would have suggested that that served the constituents even in the um, worst parts of the country uh, well. 
Or could the constituents have convinced the representatives that some of their most important interests were being ignored in this whole wonderful European business? Um, or maybe the representatives uh, in, in, in Britain or in other places don't have any power at all. What's interesting to me is how little there is in my field of political science, either in the empirical work or in the normative work, on this issue of representative constituent communication. There is some work on, on surgeries, on, 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 on representatives <coughs> doing constituency service. But when they do constituency service, they try to answer sort of urgent, practical questions from their constituents. They don't kind of sit down with them and talk about Brexit. Um, so there's not much on this issue of this communication. And, and so I'm hoping to open the door to a little bit more empirical and normative work on it. And as I said, I'm going to be talking about it. I won't, not, not obviously, since we don't have a lot of time, I'm going to be talking about it briefly uh, in all these areas of electoral, administrative, and societal. Um, so um, the representative is interlocutor. So what does constituents want? I don't know what they want in Britain, because the only work that I've ever been able to find where someone actually went out uh, with a little microphone and asked constituents, what do you want from your representative, was a guy named Christopher Grill, who talked to 28 people. This book actually got published, um, (laughs) and it's got a blurb from me on the back saying, wonderful, wonderful, but... Look, 28 people in, in upper New York State. I mean, this is not what you'd call um, a wide-ranging survey. Uh, and I have no idea whether it applies in Britain. But I would like to know. I would like to know. I would like to have somebody go out and ask people in Britain, what do you want from your representative? Because these people seem to say that what they wanted from their representative was communication. And then Richard Fenno, who is probably the most uh, famous qualitative researcher in the field of representation, um, concludes his book saying responsiveness and hence representation require two-way communication. Um, And then he, he concludes, communication and the assurance of communication, these are the irreducible underpinnings of representation. So the one most famous person to write in a qualitative manner didn't just look at 28 constituents in Upper New York State, but spent a lifetime uh, interviewing members of Congress, um, concluded that communication is the irreducible underpinning of representation. And yet we have very little work on this subject. So, um, but very recently, um, we have had some experiments with how you can increase the quality and the amount of communication and indeed to some degree, I'm not sure whether we should uh, call it deliberation, um, but uh, talk based on attempts at justification uh, among citizens and members of Congress. So what Neblo and his, oh, by the way, this American Political Science Review article, it won the prize for being the best uh, article in the American Political Science Review, that, which is the premier journal in political science that year. So, good article. And what they did was they took random samples of citizens um, from 13 congressional districts and got them online 
uh, to participate with their member of Congress. Um, the, one of the interesting things, the full of interesting studies uh, stuff in this, but one of the interesting things is that usually low, less educated people, lower income people, blacks and Hispanics and women, usually those people participate less. Um, actually women uh, are, vote as much but are a little bit less likely to participate in other things. But that was not true in this study. People across the board, including the people who are most cynical, who normally uh, don't want to participate, they, they agreed to participate. Um, the, only, <laughs> the only two characteristics that, uh, that uh, made you more likely to participate were you had young children in the home or you were un- unemployed. Why would that make you more likely to participate? Because this is an online discussion. So these were people who had a little bit of time next to a com- more likely. Now they weren't. It wasn't very, very much more likely. But so the standard things that that reduced participation did not occur here. Um, and what was particularly interesting then, they did a follow-up study and they found that everybody who had participated. This was on immigration, a pretty a tough subject in the United States. Everyone who had participated had spoken with one other person. And frequently, that one other person had then spoken with other people, or the person had spoken with more. Actually, it's one point, average of 1.5 people that the participants spoke with. So there's a ripple effect as well. And they figured out that even in a place as big as the United States, if um, the representatives spent two hours a week talking with their constituents, at the end of six years, they could have covered talking with about a quarter of their constituents. Um, now, and this is talking in a somewhat deliberative way in that the constituents can talk, respond to one another as well as responding to the member of Congress. It's not just a question-answer session, and that's going to be critical for my point about recursive communication. That there, and, the, and there were follow-up, you know, because it went on for an hour, there were follow-up questions and ability to say, well, what did you mean? And I don't agree with that, and a sort of a back and forth. So the standard model is that the voter votes for the representative who appoints the administrator, who then creates rules that affect the citizen. Sort of, it's one way. Well, I took these symbols from the web, and you may not understand them. They're supposed to be two-way arrows. So the citizen communicates with the representative and gets communicated back to. The representative communicates with the administrator and gets communicated back to the administrator communicates with the citizen. And it's not just two one-way arrows. The idea of recursive communication is that you listen, you think about it, you might or might not change your opinion, and then you come back and say what you conclude, whether you change your opinion or not, and why. And then the other person hears what you say, listens, thinks about it, comes back with whether or not they changed their mind and so forth, and why. And so the, it ought to change. This communication, the content of it ought to change over time because it ought to be much more like uh, a conversation. And similarly, these citizens should be having that kind of recursive communication with their non-elected representatives, and we'll get to what they are in a minute. Um, and the administrator should be having co- those conversations, and the citizens should be having those conversations with their non-electoral representatives. So, in other words, there should sh- all be a blooming, buzzing beehive of recursive communication. This is not going to happen, but at the moment, we don't even have it as an ideal. I'm suggesting it as an ideal. If you don't have an ideal, then you don't know what to work toward. 
So I'm suggesting this is a good ideal to work toward. And I don't see that in much of, in any of the normative literature, and I don't see it in any of the empirical literature. I don't see anybody saying, okay, if this is what you ought to work toward, where might we find it? You know, where, where well, I'm going to go look for it. Uh, nobody's looked for it. So, um, okay, so that's, uh, that's, by the way, that's my big point. Okay, now I'm going to go on. I just wanted to... Just wanted to um, so we're going to, I got the whole concept of recursive deliberation from an article by Sable and Zeitlin um, about the EU. And they uh, looked at what these EU committees do. And I'm going to simplify uh, very dramatically by saying, you know, suppose there's an EU committee on, a, on roads. Okay, then there'll be the roads person from Romania and the roads person from Sweden and the roads person from France and so forth. And they'll talk together. The elected representatives give a broad mandate, you know, make better roads, that broad mandate. Um, so then these folks consult with experts, they negotiate among themselves, they say, you know, Romania has hardly any roads, so we ought to give them more than their, you know, than their, than their equal due, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we need to put. We need to pay attention to culverts. We need to. They get the bike association in there, and the bike association says there need to be bike lanes, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they they talk and they talk and they talk and they. Um, and as they talk, they bring in societal groups. They bring in the bike association. They bring in the uh, road construction union. They bring in the people who make concrete, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then as as they work out a reasonable way to go about roads in the next five years, they circle that back to the elected representatives. So a lot of the accountability that's going on, and a number of people say, oh, these EU committees don't have any accountability. They have a lot of the accountability going on is what organizational theorists call peer accountability. It means that if the road person from Romania says, well, no, actually, I think we should all give our contracts to X, who happens to be my brother. Um, the road experts from Sweden and France are going to say, no way. You know, I, I, we know that that's your brother. These are people who are actually in the road business. So they, they, they can see the sleazy stuff pretty easily. And they, um, they pr provide what's called peer accountability. And then this is a, we, for example, all tenured professors have, are on a more or less a peer accountability system. We each look at each other and say, um, and we use reputational sanctions to kind of keep everybody doing the right thing. Um, now, a lot of peer accountability can get very inbred. You sort of start, uh, the peer, you and the, and the elite, and this peer accountability elite start thinking that X is important and then you get reinforced and you start doing X. And the next thing, you're, you're just, you know, you're being absolutely precise about the number of angels on the head of a pin, uh, which is very, very important to the subgroup of the subgroup in this profession, but actually has no, no use to the people at all. So that's where starting with the elected representatives, uh, having the elected representatives at the end and having the societal stakeholders in between keeps the peer group honest, uh, to, namely doing real problems. Unfortunately, as we all know, there's too much influence of business and capital. 
this is, by the way, my, these are my comments on the article. They don't, they don't mention these problems, but they agree with them. I've talked, with, talked to them in person. Um, too much influence of business and capital. The stakeholder groups are often self-appointed representatives, and that concept of self-appointed representative comes from Laura Montanaro, who uh, has a terrific article on the democratic legitimacy of self-appointed representatives in the Journal of Politics uh, a couple of years ago. So this, and this is, we're going to come back to this concept of a self-appointed representative because what are these stakeholder groups? You know that bicycles association that I was talking about? Probably not elected by every single owner of a bike in that country. Probably people who were nuts about bicycling and volunteered to be, and therefore don't necessarily represent the interests of everybody with a bike because they might be much more interested in the kinds of things that aficionados are interested in, not the kinds of things that an average citizen is interested in. So these stakeholder groups are better than nothing, but not perfect. And also by the time, there are very few actual citizens involved. There's rarely a randomized um, citizen jury or citizen assembly. Um, By the time they, they cycle this policy back to the elected representatives, which is a very good idea, it's kind of a take it or leave it situation often. And the representatives usually say, sure, I mean, what can I say? So it would be better, I think, if you involve the representatives a little bit more in that recursive. But that's where I took the idea that you want to have sort of lots and lots and lots of consultation to come up with things that people can get, that are good policies and people have a stake in. So um, with self-appointed representatives, uh, recursive deliberation is not much of a norm. That is to say, if I offer to be, um, as I have in the past, uh, on some committee in the American Political Science Association and we're doing stuff for women, phew, it takes enough of my time already to be on that committee. I don't think that my duty is to you know, consult with all the people out there. Sure, I'll, I'll, you know, when I'm at supper with somebody, I might consult with them. <laughs> Who am I going to be at supper with? I'm going to be at supper with somebody a lot like myself. So there's no norm that you need to really be reaching out across all your quote-unquote constituency because it's an informal constituency. We have no norm of that, but we should, Um, and so forth. Now, I want to ask, what is good recursive communication? And I'm just going to bring in a little bit from the deliberative literature here in my last couple of minutes. Um, Among the deliberative theorists that I'm involved with, We've, um, we're making the argument, this comes from the introduction to the Oxford Handbook on um, Deliberative Democracy, which we haven't yet sent to the publisher, so this is hot off the press. Um, but our, our argument is that there's been quite an evolution in the thinking of many deliberative theorists between the first generation, Habermas, the Rawlsians like Josh Cohen, and the Civic Republicans, that first generation of theorists, and what we're calling the second generation of theorists, the theorists writing about deliberation now. There are a couple of things that have absolutely not changed. One is the, the respect. You can't have good deliberative communication without mute, some sort of real mutual respect. And that's, of course, that's, we're talking about the ideals now. We're only talking about the ideals, not the practice. That's an absence of power, impossible to achieve, but something that we perhaps should strive for. So if you all have... Uh, seminars, whether you're students or professors, some, some of the best seminars are those when, in which there's real equal respect around the table and when people put their idea f- ideas for, forth, they're listened to. 
Um, but there have been some changes. So in the old Habermasian or Josh Cohen or Civic Republican uh, tradition, um, the emphasis is on reasons and the capital R rational enlightenment sense. We've softened that to considerations. Um, and one example would be um, somebody saying at a meeting, I'm not comfortable with that. That's very irritating com- com- uh, communication. Uh, it's completely contentless. It has no reason behind it at all. What it is, it's an, it's an invitation to the rest of the people at the meeting or the, the, in the group to help me figure out why I'm not comfortable. And we can go forward. So there's a, all I'm expressing is my sort of vague dissatisfaction. I'm being driven by an emotional sense as well as a rational sense. Uh, and then I'm, I might advance some of the some things that are that are based a little bit in things like solidarity um, and not not just cognition as considerations that you might that we, are, that we all ought to give weight to and consider. Um, it's a broader word than reason. The old um, the first generation aim at consensus. Now I think that almost everybody agrees that any deliberation should aim at consensus when that's possible, and at clarifying the conflict when that's not possible so that you know what to vote on or what to negotiate or whatever. Common good orientation, we've said yes, but it's also important, particularly feminists say, it's important to be able to put self-interest on the table and say, but actually what's good for me is X. Now, and that should be allowed as long as it's constrained by fairness. Um, and equality of opportunity, I'm going to, going to actually skip. Um, so... We've gone so far as to say that you can even um, think about negotiation as being deliberative. And Leah has written about this too. Um, And I won't really walk you through all of this, but there are various kinds of deliberative negotiation where you put your interests on the table. And um, so here's, let's just go back to the Brexit remain vote. Now, we know that thinking about representative communication, thinking about whether anybody who had, had, an, had some view on this had any actual communicative relationship with their representative other than sending them a whole set of emails and having them have a statement. Those are two forms of two-way communication. The media, obviously, were huge in this. There was a lot of false and inflammatory ad- advertising. A lot of it was driven by machinations in Parliament. Well, what was happening? I would, have, I would really love to see some empirical work about what was happening on the, actually back in the districts. Were representatives talking with their constituents about this? Were constituents talking with representatives? And were the representatives, the, this is a British parliamentary system, so, it's, so the question is, did the representatives at all convey the sort of views of their constituents to within their party? How much recursiveness was going on? I, I think probably relatively little. Um, and so there was probably also very little negotiation. Um, here's a hypothetical example of negotiation. How about, um, how about what, what would happen if uh, May said, um, okay, Britain will remain in the EU if the EU adopts a more restrictive immigration policy. You know, the EU might accept that, and the constituents who wanted Brexit might accept that. They might. I don't know whether they might or not. I don't know whether it meets the 
constituents who wanted to get out of Europe it meets their most strongly felt needs. It obviously doesn't need, meet large numbers of needs. And would can could the pro-immigrant citizens live with that? Is that sort of within the bounds of something that, in the way of a of a of a current political um, sort of move, you could kind of live with for the next X years? How would we know? With the representative system set up the way it is now, how could we know the answer to these extremely important questions? I don't think we could, because I don't think we have in place these systems of recursive communication. So, um, and similarly, the parties, uh, the voluntary associations, the NGOs, the media, they're not going to really be doing this job of helping. The representative is in a, in a unique role. The representative was elected by constituents. And the representative is in a perfect role to be the interlocutor. Because when, when we teach representation in political science, we don't teach this interlocutory role, that's not something that even comes up at all. And yet the representatives have a perfect place to do that. They've been elected by the citizens. They, the citizens should know them. So that's, um, that's more or less uh, my uh, point. Uh, I'll close with a quotation from Iris Marion Young, a friend and, and a hero. Um, she wrote it uh, back in 2000. We should evaluate the process of representation according to the character of the relationship between the representatives and the constituents. And that, I think, is correct. But have we been doing that? We have not. And so I urge us to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jenny. Uh, we'll now oh, how many do we have? What percentage gave? 76. 76? Okay. All right. Not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> yes. Um, so we'll now open the Save floor for, me, for Q&A for about half an hour. Please keep your hands up so that I can write down the questions. Okay. We'll start with Alan here. Please keep your hands until I, I caught you. I was wondering if you'd like to... Oh, right. Push your microphone. No, it's good. Oh, by the way, I'm deaf, so okay, um, it's very I'll, good to have can that. Can you hear me? Yes, you now do. I can, right. I was wondering if you'd like to say a little bit more about the role of the press in all this, because it seems to me that it might be a kind of an objection to your portrait of a society in which recursive deliberation takes place, that the sort of rational attitudes upon which that depends could be undermined and distorted by a tabloid press, which is controlled very largely with, you know, by people with particular political interests. Yes. So I thought you might yes. have said Yes, absolutely. I, when I mentioned the media, I didn't put them as a force for good. No. I didn't have time to, to go into how they might be a force for bad. But they are certainly not recursive. The media, for one thing, are kind of one way. You, you print your... The newspaper, you have your television show, and the consumer reads it or watches it or whatever. We don't have any way of the of of having recursiveness, um, but but also there are many many uh, instances. There's many incentives, as as you well know, for the media 
to distort lie uh, to get um, because if it bleeds, it leads. If you know you have to sell newspapers, there's an imperative there that it is contrary to the imperative of discursive community. The one word that I would take a little bit of exception to is your word reason, just to well, just say reasons and other considerations, yes, you know, um, and I'm sure you meant that. Yes. Uh, um, and it doesn't mean that the media can't help. For example, if you have um, what many people these days are doing, uh, citizens, well, they're expensive, citizens' assemblies and deliberative polls where you take a random, uh, select, uh, random group of the citizenry, you take them off for a weekend, um, they deliberate something, and you come out, you see how, they, how their opinion moves. Well, that would be a deliberative poll, but there are other forms. Um, when those are done, those are rarely done in a way that's recursive with the other citizens. It's, it's rare that those findings are published and then something is taken back from citizens who hear what, what their fellow citizens, how they've moved, what they think about that. So there's very little recursivity in, even in something like a deliberative, deliberative poll. But, but it's possible to do it. And I think the media could get behind things. I think the media could could, um, as a matter of public service and possibly for selling newspapers but I'd, or, or television shows, it, po- it probably wouldn't do that. But as a matter of public service, they could get behind the recursive concept and begin to publish um, not just the kind of comments you get when you go on the, online, which are all flame, one person flaming the other, um, but, but something more deliberative. I think the media could play that role. They have no incentive to do so. So they'd have to do it out of duty and solidarity. <coughs> Can we take uh, two or three even? Yeah, I'll let you. I'll let you a number do of this. questions, and I have. A, I fear we don't have enough time yeah, to take okay, everyone's so, questions. So let's just take uh, Chandran, Keith, and the gentleman over there has been holding up. So we'll have these three first, and then. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I like the way you set up the the dilemma at the beginning, uh, the need for more coercion, but unfortunately, given the way things are. Um, the greater the need, the lower the, the legitimacy. But I wondered about the, uh, the strategy for overcoming the problem that you were pushing towards, and that's that um, we get uh, a citizenry more, in a sense, more democratically involved so that they you know, engage in a conversation with their, with their representatives. And the reason I'm wondering about this particular strategy is that um, it's a strategy which moves away from a model of... Um, legitimacy, which is one in which what the citizens do is essentially acquiesce in what their, their rulers do. Um, so they're relatively passive. But if you try to move towards a regime in which there's much more interaction and communication, you also, by the nature of that move, raise the, um, raise the expectations. So if you raise the expectations, you also raise the chances that these expectations will be disappointed. So you're doing both those things at once. You're you know, raising confidence in the representatives, but also raising the expectations, in which case um, it suggests to me that one alternative way of thinking about the solution to the initial problem is actually you need less democratization. That, that might actually work because it doesn't have this, you know, this kind of um, um, you know, added dimension that's going to undermine the, the, the intention or the, the, the aim in the first place. Can we have Keith's question as well? Just there, the first one. Uh, hi, yeah, I was picking up a similar point. So you began at the beginning saying that we needed a more coercive state, and I don't want to 
to challenge that claim. I just want, I just, it was, it was, I was just interested that you did it in grounds of, you know, we have to solve collective action problems. And of course, public choice school that want to uh, have a less coercive state do so on precisely the same grounds. It's the collective action problem. And it's because certain groups organize more easily, they're richer, they're more concentrated interests, more self-interested, they organize best. Mm -hmm. And they're the people that then, you know, create the regulations in their own interests and not in the common interests. So just, just to sort of add slightly to that, you had your, um, you know, the process from the European Union committees and, and you suggested, you know, the bureaucrats start off and they, they go and look for, it, for, for interests. I don't think that's correct. I mean, what happens is they're lobbied by interests and, in fact, the the agenda setters are the, are the business groups. It's the business lobby which actually are the agenda setters. It's not, anyway, that's just... So you, you, you nicely turned the argument around, but I just wondered if you could comment on that. We'll have one more question from the gentleman in the middle, uh, Ra. Um, th thank you very much indeed. I um, do have an acquaintance who would probably find it a little bit difficult if he visited the Harvard Kennedy School because he was... Um, born in December of 1963, and his two given names are Lee Harvey. We're still trying to work that one out. Um, is there, are you in any way surprised by the reactions of representatives, people actually in the representative political process, uh, to what you're saying, um, either positively or negatively? And do you see any significant difference between nation-state processes and the central EU institutions, uh, the parliament and so on, because I have to say I have seen at first hand soft corruption, in fact a bit of hard corruption actually, um, among European representatives and bureaucrats who are from countries which have a very high, generally and I think rightly regarded as a very high standard of public service behaviour, it, but it seems that they are starting to slip into ways that they would not consider or they would be sanctioned in their own countries. And I can think of one case where, frankly, there is a very real European-wide public safety issue as a result of this. Thank you. So those are all wonderful questions. Let me um, go to the raising of expectations first. Um, you, you draw a perfectly plausible scenario, and I would say only in response to it two things. One is that expectations are already quite high um, because of the things I talked about in the first slide. We've got people who already were raised to question authority, and, um, and, and they're already angry, so to speak. I mean, they're angry. They're, they're trying to get them back to being passive citizens. Um, they are passive, but they're angry citizens. Um, better, it, it's not a good space. A passive, angry citizen is not. Uh, Pujad drew on passive, angry citizens. George Wallace, who was a Southerner, who was segregationist, ran for president of the United States in his television ads. The first thing said, register to vote. <coughs> 
because they were precisely the uninvolved that he was drawing on. Uh, Trump drew on uninvolved people. So the, the, a, a whole lot of passive angry citizens is not a, 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 it's a powder keg. Um, and so I would say expectations, in fact, of government have been going up and up and up because as government has done more and more and more, well, you expect it to do more and more and more. And those things are, are separate from the way the representation is organized. So, uh, and the other, the second thing is, and I'm, I'm not saying that's an answer, but it's a partial answer. The second thing is that um, I've come up with this language of gyroscopic representation and a selection model, which you actually have here in, the, in Great Britain primarily. Um, the, in, in the United States, political science um, ha, has had for a long time the model of representation, well, since 1973, has had the model of representation in which representatives actually sort of want to shirk. They don't want to do what their constituents want them to do. And the constituents get them to do what they would otherwise not do by threatening that if, they're, if they don't do what the constituents want, they won't be reelected. So that's what I call a sanction model. And of course, all real models are both what both selection. And then I, have, I drew people's attention to what I call a selection model, where you find, if you want to go north and you want the policy to go north, you find out there a north walker. Somebody's always walked north, north all her life. And you, you see her reputation, you hear her what she says, you use your human capacities of judgment, and you, assume, you, you make a good guess that this person is going to walk north even in the legislature. And you put them in the legislature. That's a selection model. And they have an inner gyroscope. It's not all, all things are pure. Aren't there, and there's nothing is pure. Sorry, all things are mixed. So there's always some sanction. But if you have a selection model, more or less a selection model, and you think this person's sort of, you, let's say vote conservative. This person is a conservative. They came from where you live. They see conservatism the way you see, see it. The party has selected them because they're, not because they're brilliant or anything, but because they're a good, steady North Walker, good, steady conservative Walker. That person is in a perfect place to come back and say, you know, it's more complicated. I, let me see if we, I can explain what I, I see going on, and I'd like to have your reactions to that. The sanction one, they're not going to trust anyway, because they know the only reason that sanction representative is doing what that sanction representative is doing is because of fear of later punishment and so forth. So punishment's going to do all the work, and sitting down and talking about it is not going to do anything. But in the selection model, you have more chance of having this kind of recursive communication based on some mutual understandings and some growing, perhaps, understanding, so that, so that it offers some hope. I'm not... I'm not saying that's an answer to the increased expectations, but I think a selection model representative is in the position of being able to decrease expectations a little bit and say, you know, we just can't do that. We don't have the money for it, or these other people don't want it, and they're in a majority, and we just, you know, a selection model person is in a better place to explain that. Um, so rational choice um, and... Um, the fact that rational choice people don't like, won't like where I come out doesn't mean to say I can't use their uh, language and their model to, to make what I think is a coherent um, argument. Um, but they, you're completely right in pointing out that inequalities, especially massive inequalities in the coercive apparatus that are designed to benefit um, one class rather than another, is going to delegitimate de- the coercion. And I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I, I said I was going to talk, when I talked about recursive representation, I was going to talk about a small part of the picture. Um, 
you know, I think some of the best minds of our generation are um, focused on trying to trying to figure out what we can do about these um, uh, just um, incredible inequalities that are getting out of hand. It's not my field. I don't know what to do about that. I would agree that that's much more important than recursive representation. I do my little bit um, with recursive representation. Maybe if we had recursive representation, we might be able to come up with some ways of dealing with the inequality. I, I don't know, but if you're saying... So if you're saying then... Since this inequality is baked in, should we want to have more and more and more government coercion? Not necessarily. That would definitely be something that would make you take a step back. Um, but you, you should understand that the goal is actually to have more and more coercion, but to have it be genuinely legitimate. And genuinely legitimate means not just perceived to be legitimate, but actually that means that there, ha- there can't be the kind of incredible inequalities that we have today. So I think that's a very good point that you made. Um, what about the reactions of the representatives themselves? Well, I haven't had any reactions from the representatives themselves. It's a brand new paper. It's not published. Um, I'm presenting it here in its entirety for the first time ever. Um, so the chances of, of being able to, to talk to the representatives about it. But I am part of a project at the Kennedy School in which we are um, designing materials to teach congressional staff and state legislative staff and the state legislators and maybe even members of Congress themselves at some point down the road, teach them the principles of negotiation. Um, you know, in law schools and business schools, it's not, it's not, no, I mean, we all, we, you know, these are the most popular courses in, well, not the most, but among the most popular courses in policy schools and law schools and business schools. Why? Because they actually teach you something. It's not just, you know, students are, pretty good at not going to courses where they don't learn anything at all. Um, And so people are flocking to these courses because it really does teach you how to negotiate better. How, And among other things, one of the big tricks, believe it or not, is listening. That's a huge, huge trick in negotiation, is listening and asking the right questions. Max Bazerman has got, in an unpublished article, is is calling it investigative negotiation to, to underline the fact that it's about finding out from the other person what they actually need and, and want. And what, because sometimes they won't fully know it themselves. I mean, sometimes they've got a whole, bringing a whole bunch of things to the table. They think this is the most important, but as you probe, something else might be more important or maybe not more important, but important, and you can make a deal that brings that in. So, so as we do this, we will be in contact with lots of representatives, and I can ask them what they think of this recursive stuff. Uh, at the moment, I don't have an answer for you. Okay, let's take three more questions. Can I remind you to keep the questions brief so that we can take as many members of the audience as possible? There's uh, Marit over there, fifth row in the middle. And then you, you next. And then there's Luke here. And then you're the third. Thank you very much. I'm Marit Hammond from Kiel University. Um, so thanks for that interesting talk. And, and actually, your, your argument about the need for recursive deliberation, um, you know, for the left behind, it really matches kind of what I've picked up as well, um, you know, kind of talking to people. But in terms of the, the theoretical argument, I wondered where contestation and, and the critical voice was in your characterization of, of deliberation. Um, because, you know, like it wasn't kind of part of the table anymore and, and your, your account at the end sounded quite constructive, you know, kind of working with the representatives and keeping citizens happy as well. Um, but at the beginning, you, you started talking about the normative legitimacy requiring critical scrutiny 
um, of, of authority. And so I think, you know, I'm very sympathetic with the, with the argument you came up with at the end, but I suppose the critics would say that um, if deliberation is too close and, and not critical enough, uh, so too close to the representatives, you know, it could end up actually perpetuating structural inequalities and so on and, and exclusions. And, um, and in, if, it kind of, if it's presented as a set of rules that are pre-given from the start, like it has to be like this and it has to be like that, rather than where the deliberative process itself um, you know, uncovers um, unfair arguments and so on um, due to the kind of context in which the deliberation takes place naturally, then it, you know, it, it becomes kind of too, um, like too close a loop, I suppose, and it doesn't actually achieve that, that normative legitimacy function. So I wondered how you'd respond to that kind of challenge. Let's have a third row here on the very left. Thanks. Um, so I wanted just to ask about how far um, this theory of recursive communication with uh, representatives is consistent with or combinable with party politics. So if you're a member of a political party representative, I mean, you're, you're formally constrained ideologically to a certain degree in the things that you can, you can actually say. I mean, in deliberative democracy theory, citizen to citizen, I mean, of course, it's idealistic, but people are rarely sort of formally constrained in the things that they can accept. Whereas if I want to continue being a member of a party um, representing a certain party, I can't, however good your arguments might be and however far you've convinced me, I can't actually um, change my view and, and accept what you've come up with. No. There's a great Canadian political scientist, David Easton, who developed a systems analysis our political life. I wonder if you've used his theories in terms of what you're talking about. I've heard of him. You probably have. David it? Easton, the Canadian political. Oh, David Easton. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So maybe we can have one more. Okay. Yes. Maybe one, one more. more okay. Well, you spoke about uh, <clears throat> increasing state coercion, and yet it seems to me that um, there's a pushback both here and in, in the U.S. against. A central, gov you know, a central government. Central. Um, and it's interesting that um, what we're seeing now in the, in the American context is that, for the, that the progressive states, um, like California, Massachusetts, are pushing back against federal law in terms of the sanctuary uh, provisions. Whereas in the past, of course, it's been the people on the right who have, have railed against the dictates from Washington. So do you think it's, it would be possible to get people to agree via recursive communication to greater state coercion? Okay. Can we do one more and make this list? Uh, all right. Or, or uh, it's up to you if you'd rather answer now. Okay. Second, let me take a, one further note then. Uh, uh, You're down there. So is the gentleman one, two, three, four, yes, five. Yes, okay, so five questions. Go ahead. That's it. Yeah. One more. Uh, hello. I just want to ask you if you have thought about the, the proper media for uh, enabling this recursive communication to happen, or we should invent new ways of bringing the representatives closer to the constituencies. Yeah. I answered a question on the media earlier. What, what further question do you want to ask about it? Because like, um, my initial thought was, by talking to constituencies and stakeholders, there are often, often competitive interests 
And if in that case the result like enabling like uh, a social media to have these social discussions media. to happen, okay. or, or or rather, or, like or, or, or. I mean, like uh, ways of communicating with constituencies, maybe this could lead lead to like a difficult situation and a deadlock at the end. Thank you. Right. Um, so I'm going to kind of add, co collect some of some of these. We're touching on some of the uh, just in regard to David Easton. Yes, absolutely. Um, I. I, I don't take precisely his systemic perspective, but I think it's important to think of things in a systemic way. I um, actually wrote um, so, something with some colleagues about some, about thinking of deliberation as part of a deliberative system, and um, I think that if we are to think about it at uh, representation in terms of the electoral representatives, the um, administrative representatives at the high policy making level and also at the, uh, the level of enforcement and the societal representatives, if we, we can think of those all as being part of a representative system. Um, we'll, we'll be better able to understand where the system is failing people because with systemic things in the, in the best possible circumstance, uh, failures in one place can be kind of taken care of by the, the rest of the system, they kind of rush in and fill the functional needs. In the worst possible cases, uh, some failure in one place will then keep everything else from working um, because you needed that, it, that particular uh, cog in the system. So yes, I think it's very important to think about this systemically and that would be a larger project, but I, I would agree with that. Um, then there are, um, uh, well, I'm the, I'll do the central government um, uh, one. Uh, yes, uh, this is a, 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 tr a terrific problem. We, we've had had it for hundreds of, you know, for centuries. We've had the problem of how, what degree of decentralization and centralization make best uh, make best sense in any given context. And uh, the answer is we don't know yet. Where human beings are learning by experimentation, um, and we. However, probably we'll need, because of the systemic reason, because we're, we're living in more and more interdependent systems, we will probably need larger and larger forms of coercive government, as well as the local ones. Um, and the question is that you asked is, can recursive communication help with that? I don't know. Nobody's studied. This is a you know this is a new idea. Um, it would seem to me yes. Um, there are many things that I've not wanted pills, bitter pills that I've not wanted to swallow in my life, and being together with someone who's who thinks it's a good idea that I swallow that bitter pill, um, and listening to all the reasons I don't want to swallow it, and listening to the reasons why I should swallow it, and so forth, make it slightly more likely that I'll swallow it. I'm not saying that. Um, you know, I've swallowed every bitter pill that's come my way, believe me. Um, and that's, I'm going to come back to resistance in a second. Um, but, uh, but yes, I would think it would seem to, on its face to be make it more likely rather than less likely. That's all I can say. Um, so now the, the, the issue of the media and parties and the critical voice, I think, come a l little bit together. Um, and the question was, uh, where's the role in here for critical voice? Well, I only had 45 minutes. Um, and when I talked about the sort of, I had media parties and NGOs together and I did not discuss them. Um, and the reason I did not discuss them is to imply that they, they didn't necessarily easily fit into this recursive framework. 
and in fact might work against it. And that's, that's good, that's fun. And I would say, yes, indeed, we need lots of critical voices. Um, the media play a role, although sometimes it can get out of hand. Um, parties play an incredibly important role. They have institutional incentives for being critical of the party in power, even if they actually agree. Um, I mean, you, there's, there's sort of, you might call excessive incentives in, in some ways, because you can have somewhat something of agreement, but it makes sense for the parties, from the party's perspective, to create disagreement. But th- that's fine. We need disagreement, and excess is always you know, just there. So, um, and similarly with NGOs, we have voluntary associations that I give lots of my money to um, that go out there and are critical of various things that don't yet exist um, and should. So, um, so I'm very much in, in favor of those things. Now the question is, how can that fit in with recursive representation? Can, for example, parties, I've forgotten who asked the party question, um, it's conceivable that along with the with the role that um, is oppositional and critical. It's conceivable that parties also could, if this were an ideal, this recursive representation ideal, could have recursive representation with their constituents, with their party constituents, in a way that's less um, um, sort of town hall meeting-ish. When I say town hall meeting-ish, it's basically the activists coming and screaming and uh, the, you know, the representatives being defensive, um, and you know that's good though. I'm in favor of it, but it's not what it's not recursive. Um, you have to have it too. And the question is, can the could the parties? I don't know. It's, I don't think it's compatible. I think the representatives have inbuilt incentives that it's not at all incompatible with a representative role. It's quite it's it's quite doable, and not not just doable, but um, even though I haven't spoken with any representatives about it, it seems to me compatible with a representative role. I'm not sure how compatible it is with all the other things that parties have to do. Um, and so that's an open, open question. How, but in a larger system, you have large numbers of elements. And I wasn't com- arguing that recurs- it should be recursive all the way down like turtles, um, just that recursiveness should be part of an important piece of it, namely that the representative piece. Um, you use the word um, closed loop and um, pre-set uh, rules, or something like I can't read my own writing, but something like that. Um, and I, I would be very against either of those. Um, the idea of recursive representation wouldn't be simply that each person just repeats what the other says or makes one change and stops, that this that this loop should be permeable, and that the rules, I mean, what are the rules? We don't even know what the rules are, but certainly whatever they are, they shouldn't be set in, in stone. So I think that recursive representation is compatible both with an open process and with critical processes in other parts of the system. Um, and similarly with the media. Um, I think the media have play an important critical role um, but that it's rather hard for them to be recursive. But you don't have to ask everything to be recursive. Um, I'm suggesting that, that elected representatives, administrative representatives, and many more, many more societal representatives than we now have begin to take on a, recurs- you know, a rec- recursiveness as part of their understood role, as part of their duty, as part of their obligation, as part of what it means to be a representative. That's not the case right now. And I think if it were the case, things might be better. 
Okay, with apologies to those I have missed. Um, actually, no, Anne had a question. Uh, Sorry. Oh so God. I've now seen. Well, so let's let's speak. No, it's just. That. She has to be able to speak. She's an old friend. Okay. <laughs> uh, just, just wanted. Um, whether you have any thoughts about where the the uh, the larger obstacles lie, um, because I mean you ha- you refer to a sort of study which says that constituents want they want more communication, which kind of suggests well the resistance is the representatives they're the biggest obstacle, um, but of course citizens are also very dismissive of politicians at the moment, so there are obstacles there. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts. You know, between the representatives on the one side and the citizens on the other, right. where do you think the larger options are? Well, since this is all very um, sort of new, uh, there hasn't been time for much. Well, for, it hasn't been put into practice, and so therefore there's not much time for resistance to some of these things. But let's take Michael Neblo's experiment where he had the online recursive discussions with, that's my word, not his, uh, with his constituents. The, both the representatives and the constituents wanted it. And the, the constituents who were turned off the most, the most cynical, the ones who thought government, um, people like me don't have any say in what the government does and other measures of to heck with all your houses. Those, those are actually more likely than other citizens to want to be part of these groups. Um, once they realize they're actually going to be able to talk to their member of Congress. They have no interest in talking with other citizens um, because they think that's all that, you know, all that airy-fairy stuff. But to be able to really talk with their representative, they like that. So they like it and the representatives like it. I mean, there is a problem with incumbency advantage, which is already large. Uh, It does increase incumbency advantage because people who partake in one of these things, tend to come away with a better view of the representative. Oh, not such a bad sort. He, he said this and that to me. You know. um, so actually both constituents and representatives like it. Now, if it were to be put into place, we might see appropriate resistance from places. For example, when the British Health Service put into effect a very terrible form of consulting citizens. It wasn't, wasn't really ra- randomly selected and, and all this. Um, but, but a whole set of these little citizen juries that were sort of like focus groups. Um, John Parkinson showed that they had the disadvantage of undermining the advocacy organizations because the government could say, oh, well, you know, you unreasonable advocacy organizations are demanding A, B, C, but this group of very reasonable citizens thinks not, you know, so, so, so what's in the middle of the alphabet, you know, M, you know, um, they, 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 they're there for that. And so you advocacy groups can go jump in a lake. So once the advocacy groups realized that, they, they became the resistance, and rightly so. Um, so that was, so we, sometimes you can't know, it all seemed wonderful before it happened. Oh, consult the citizens, lovely, lovely. Um, but then then we began to see when we put it into effect what were the unexpected negative consequences and the resistance came up. So I can't, you don't expect, you won't get it probably from the representatives, you won't get it from the constituents. In the United States, the reason this is not going forward, this is just amazing. The ethics committee in Congress says that you can't, they consider this a gift. And they say you can't, congressmen, congresspeople can't accept gifts. So you can't give this, them this possibility of talking with their citizens. It's costly. It's about a thousand. It's not so costly. If you did it in scale, you could do it, do it for about a thousand, you know, a thousand dollars a time, or less than that, maybe five hundred dollars a time. But and they and the people who are doing this, Michael Nibelow and his crew said, but we're offering it to everybody. We're not 
This isn't a, a bribe. I mean, this anti-gifts thing is anti-gifts to specific people on the grounds that they'll do something. And they said, no, it's a gift. It's a gift. The fact that you're giving it to everybody is irrelevant. Well, you know, I hope we'll... So talk about resistance. That's mindless resistance. I mean, that, that, there's nothing to be said for that form of resistance. Um, and let us hope that it, uh, you know, diminishes in the future. Okay, so please join me, everyone, in thanking Denny for this wonderful talk.